Welcome to the Deep Collaboration Podcast from Coldscreen. My name is Max Andocker, and in this episode, I'm joined by my co-founder, Till Peeper, in a fascinating conversation with Darren Murph. As the head of Remote for GitLab, Darren's knowledge cannot be understated when it comes to creating the right environment for people to thrive in working remotely. I hope you enjoy it. So welcome to the Deep Collaboration Podcast. I'm here together with my co-founder and CEO, Till Peeper, and Darren Murph, who's the head of remote at GitLab. Very welcome, Darren. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Perhaps we can start by talking a bit about uh, you and uh, your background. Yes, yeah, so I am head of remote at GitLab. It's a pretty uncommon title. We have pioneered that title here, but it's becoming more popular. Uh, you take a look at organizations like Facebook and Quora. They've already hired dedicated remote leaders. There was a report put out by T3 Advisors taking a look at how that is changing and, and tracking over time. It's been a very fascinating journey. So for some context, GitLab builds a DevOps platform and collaboration platform, but we are 1300 people in more than 65 countries with no company owned offices. So our organizational design has been studied by Harvard and NCED. We have case studies being taught around the world on how we do that. And before coming to GitLab, I spent almost 15 years leading teams around the globe in hybrid remote scenarios. And so it's been fascinating to transfer some of that. I spent eight years at Engadget, had a lot of fun doing that. I was talking to you a bit off air on some of the, the early incarnations of what would be our handbook and how that is translated to GitLab now. But it's been a fun journey and it's, uh, it's awesome to be here at GitLab when the world went remote, essentially, and it put us in an amazing position to be able to inform and advocate on how to do it well. Yeah, you obviously have an amazing background. As you said, I think GitLab is a, one of the companies that are really leading the way in how to handle remote work. And I guess also the transition into hybrid work that a lot of organizations will have to go through post-COVID. I, I want to spend some time on talking about the way you structured working general between async versus synchronous, because that's something that you often talk about in interviews, et cetera. So perhaps we can start there. Yeah, we could start there and spend the rest of the day there. Like what a what an amazing, what an amazing topic. So I'll start with two things and we can dig into it as you like. A lot of people will position sync and async with a versus in between. So synchronous versus asynchronous. But I don't look at it that way. These are two tools in the collaboration toolbox. And so sometimes you need to pull out this tool and sometimes you need to pull out the other tool to get a specific job done. So when I look at sync and async, I think they have different purposes and I think you should be able to master and utilize both of those. And the real superpower is knowing when to use which and when to pivot from one to the other. And it takes a lot of time in working with yourself and and working with your team to really know when that is. But there are some guiding principles on when to start with either that we use at GitLab. And so I'm happy to dive into those. But the other key point I want to focus on here is it's important to have a bias toward one or the other so that you at least know where to lean and then reverse engineer from there. And one of the most incredible things at working about working at GitLab is that we have a bias towards asynchronous communication. But there's an interesting story behind that. So many people would assume that 
That would be because we value collaboration or we value results or maybe efficiency. So we have six core values and I just named three of those. But the bias for async is actually within our diversity, inclusion, and belonging value, which when most people see that, it seems kind of an odd fit for a bias for async to be within your diversity value. But the reason is this. If I make a concerted effort to move a piece of work forward without commandeering 30 or 45 minutes of someone else's day, then I am fundamentally being more respectful of their time. And so we look at async and sync through the lens of respect. And so although there are amazing opportunities to use synchronous engagement, we want people to first put in the effort to see if they can move something forward without needing someone online at the same time. Because we're all people, we have families, we have hobbies, we have community. And any time that a synchronous engagement happens, that's time that you can't spend on those initiatives. And what also happens is if you... If you just throw out lots of synchronous engagements, kind of wall-to-wall meetings to get work done, you don't really leave a lot of room for innovation and creativity, and the synchronous moments start to kind of lose their luster. So when you put more effort into clearing out more space in people's days for asynchronous work, the synchronous moments you do have can be much more impactful. And so instead of it being just another meeting in a sea of meetings. It's something that you look forward to and you actively plan for and there's an agenda and it, it, it means something. So that's philosophically how we look at it. That's awesome. Um, and we actually at CoScreen, we, I think we have a similar bias in the sense of that I would say three quarters of the day are async where we use Slack, we use Loom, we use, uh, of course, GitLab. That's where CoScreen is being built. That being said, we're a synchronous collaboration tool. Like we are covering the other side of the spectrum. So in our, on our side, it, we sometimes think it also works because we have very senior team members like that have worked for over 10 years in engineering teams, for example. They know what they have to do. They don't need much guidance. Do you feel there is, I mean, or for, with regards to GitLab, do you hire people that are compatible with async? Because there might be certain people that either don't want that or aren't, aren't uh, you know, for, for whom it might not be the great fit. It's a great question. So I'll give you two points on that. The short answer is yes. We hire for a profile called manager of one. This essentially means that we want to hire people who are totally comfortable and capable of managing their own time and attention with very little oversight. And if they do need direction or guidance, they manage the asking for that guidance. And so we want people who are very self-aware of their time and they will ask for guidance if, if they need it. Uh, so that's that's kind of the cornerstone of what we hire for. But the second element of this is we write down our values. And GitLab's values aren't just values, these kind of esoteric principles. They are the operating manual on how we get work done and how we treat each other. And so when I mentioned earlier, one of our sub-values, a substantiator of a value, was bias for async. We actually bring this up in the interview process to make sure that people align with the values. We want to make sure that people want to work in this way. And what you'll find is that the more you document your values and your operating principles, the more of a favor you are doing to any candidate because you are giving them a heads up of what they are self-selecting into or opting into. I like to say no one accidentally ends up at all remote GitLab and is surprised that there's no in-person interview along the way. We make it very clear that this is what it's like to work here. 
And not that it will work for everyone, but as a leadership team, if you're building and scaling a company, it's super important to document what those operating principles are. You want people opting into it. You want people who are going to be tailwinds and work in that direction. And you also want to be transparent about it so that the people who are considering working with you know exactly what they're getting into. And do you think, I mean, I, I, we, we got the GitLab view, we're, we're quite similar in that regard, but do you think everyone for it would be the best thing for every company? Or do you think it's more like evenly split that they are sync companies and they're async companies? I don't think this way of working is perfectly suitable for everyone. I think one of the interesting outcomes of the COVID-19 pandemic is it will make organizations be more clear about their operating principles. And there will be some companies that transition more, more asynchronously. They will transition to a remote model. They will have to implement some of these quintessential remote first practices. But on the other side of that, I think there will be some organizations who have tested the waters with crisis-induced work from home over the past year or so and say, this is exactly what we don't want. And we are going to be clear about our rigidity. And we're going to be clear about where we are co-located and why we are co-located. And they will probably improve their office first meeting hygiene and collaboration hygiene. It will be different, but hopefully it will still be documented and well understood. And that way, if you're looking for a new role, my hope is that you can canvas the landscape of employers. And at the very least, they're being more clear about what and how they're doing and how they're working. If you look at the two, on one side, the asynchronous first organizations, on the other side, the synchronous first, like what are some traits that differ the two? Um, would you say that certain categories are better, a better fit for asynchronous work or is it more just corporate culture that's the defining factor? think any company that's producing predominantly digital outputs, so if you're building a collaboration platform or if you're building a social media platform where essentially all of your results are digital, you can become an asynchronous organization with less effort. It's going to be more seamless. If you have an organization where there's just-in-time manufacturing, there is an unavoidable physical component, a hospital or a bank or an automotive manufacturer, automotive garage, It's more difficult. That said, one of the things that COVID has brought to light is that it's no longer binary. You have Ford Motor Company, a company that will never avoid some amount of synchronous work on site for vehicles to be assembled. But what they've realized is that there is a portion of their workforce, legal, marketing, comms, that actually could stand to work differently and more flexibly and integrate some asynchronous practices into some forms uh, or some portions of the workforce. My hope is in doing so, they will start to install, and I say they, I mean any organization considering this transition, they'll install more of a documentation mindset and a documentation culture such that even the people that have to work on site or they are engaged in a synchronous environment We'll have access to more information from those who were working async and documenting. So my hope is that the rising tide will lift all boats. Awesome. One thing we notice is, so just on the internal processes at CodeScreen, so we run GitLab, of course, like merge requests to, uh, to, to review code. There's always two people that have to be involved in getting something to, into production. 
we noticed that um, for the complex merge requests, and although we try to split them up as much as we can, so there aren't that many, you know, super heavy complex MR sometimes that happens, that there's a risk of mis for misunderstandings. You know, there's a risk, and we feel it's a little higher risk of misunderstandings if you work async, you know, in, in chat, in MRs even, or in emails, where it's sometimes appears more risky to escalate versus when you would just have been on a call. That wouldn't have happened because there's less room for misunderstandings and for these escalations. Do you feel the same or um, how do you navigate that? Yeah, absolutely. We have a principle that if we're going to go back and forth three or more times on the, uh, the same very specific task, we try to inject some sort of synchronicity to get over that hurdle and avoid any communications. Here's, here's the principle to that. You have to look at every motion in moving a piece of work forward through the lens of ROI. So, Getting someone together for a five-minute synchronous call, it may be inconvenient, especially if you're on other sides of the world. Mm -hmm. But if the ROI on that five minutes is to catalyze weeks or months of very seamless asynchronous work, then it was time well spent. If it's five minutes that you could have just easily provided a status update on it, it's probably not as high of an ROI. But the back and forth three times thing is kind of a, a good general rule and... There's also the, the understanding that you as a senior leadership team should create an atmosphere of psychological safety so that if someone feels like there could be a miscommunication or something just doesn't feel right, they're able to bring that up early and often. And it's not seen as a slight. There's no judgment attached to it. It's with a positive intent that you are seeking a greater level of understanding. And you'll find that some people can provide that deeper level of understanding more appropriately through the written word or an asynchronous video through a Voodle or Loom or something like that. And some have an easier time communicating it synchronously. Individuals, humans are fascinating creatures. And one thing is for sure, none of us prefer exactly the same thing. And so it's worth offering as many options as you can for people to convey what it is that they're working on and what it is that they're thinking. Say, yeah, thank you so much. I think it's fascinating. And because you do say more asynchronous work, fewer synchronous sessions, how do they differ say from synchronous sessions at a primarily synchronous company? Are they shorter? Are they more or less frequent? I would say, probably less frequent, but how do they come to be? Did you schedule them? Are they ad hoc? Our synchronous moments are far more asynchronous friendly than in a typical co-located corporation. Here's what I mean by that. Even if we determine that we need a meeting on the books, that is going to be a synchronous engagement for whoever can attend. But it is established in the most async friendly way possible. All work-related meetings at GitLab have a shared Google Doc agenda attached in the calendar invite. It is sent in advance. There is an overview of what the meeting will be about, the proposed list of attendees, and some proposed outcomes. And the point in doing that is if a calendar invite shows up in your inbox and you know right away that you can't make it, maybe you're on the other side of the world, maybe you just want to be outside with your kids during that time, you can click into the agenda in advance write down your questions and then someone who does attend can synchronously verbalize that for you and then document the answer. You can read it after the fact. So it's not 
as good as being there live, but it's really close. And so we try to make our synchronous processes as inclusive as possible. And I don't think many organizations would put that much intentionality into it. If they schedule a synchronous time, you either make it or you don't. And I would encourage organizations to to not do that. Give people as many opportunities to contribute before and after as possible. Interesting. And what we notice is that that uh, since, especially in the pandemic, that the interest in pair programming, you know, more programming became, um, well, ballooned quite a bit. And we think it's because that many teams aren't as advanced as you are with regards to remote workflows and they are misunderstandings and so on. And they figure out pair programming is a way to create more connection between people in a, in a very intense form. And it's maybe the most intense uh, synchronous time you can spend together because, you know, it's typically two co coders writing code together, maybe not at the very same time, but switching every few minutes, more programming is next level way of more than two people doing the same. Do you use that as GitLab? You know, there are people that do that to even replace code you re reuse entirely because you assume the whole code was written by two people in any anyway, so there's nothing to re read anymore. What do you think about uh, that move movement? You know, I'm pretty far removed from that part of the company, and so I can't definitively answer that. But I would say in, in general, we try to have as much documentation as possible within GitLab going into or out of any synchronous engagement. And it's generally a red flag uh, if there's not. And in many cases, that will actually hold up a synchronous engagement or two people looking at something at the same time. We'll defer that until we go back and do the proper documentation. And in some cases, in doing that, it kind of obviates the need to get together synchronously. Interesting. So you'd rather say, okay, let's not meet right now. Let's rather get do our homework on both sides. And then we just meet up to, to set, settle the, the open items. Absolutely. The reason for that is you're only digging a hole deeper if you don't do that. So one of our sub-values is make a proposal. And so it is a responsibility of someone who's calling a synchronous session to already have a proposal in place. If you're going to dedicate time to synchronicity, it should only be to discuss a proposal that was already written down. If you just get together and there's a bunch of unscattered thoughts, you're just driving an even deeper communication wedge. Now there are even more people that don't know an even deeper level of thought or communication about a specific project. And so the earlier you can catch that and write a, uh, write down up to the point that you're at right now, the easier it is to convey that information after the fact. What I find surprising uh, when I heard about this initially is that, I mean, all of us, you, I think, including us, uh, CoScreen, we use Slack for, for most of that. I mean, the most content that we create, text written content is, is in Slack. And still you purge everything after a few days, right? Because you don't regard Slack as the tool where that, that should live on. Absolutely. We call this a forcing function. A lot of people ask me, how do you implement and institute a great remote operation? And sometimes it's just boring solutions. That's another sub value, yeah. by the way. We celebrate the most boring solutions. And what we found is that if you expire Slack messages after 90 days, you force people to not use it for work, which has many positive knock-on effects, one of which is that it forces people to write things down in GitLab, the platform, instead of in Slack, which is a much better tool for cataloging and scaling knowledge long-term. It uh, breaks down a lot of communication silos. But the secondary benefit of that is it makes Slack, it gives Slack more room to be an informal communication tool. 
So imagine if you were in an office and you went to the lobby. That's generally seen as a place where you have informal communication. You feel comfortable asking people about their day or maybe their family or what they did this weekend. And then in the office setting, a boardroom, it's sure there'll be some of that talk, but it's mostly about work. So what you've seen here is that an architect designed the atmosphere for the appropriate type of work or conversation. Many organizations right now are trying to muddy the waters and do both of those in the exact same medium. They're trying to do work and foster culture and informal communication using Slack. So when you look over at Slack and you see 10 red bubbles, you don't know how many of them are an urgent product request and how many of them are somebody who just wants to talk about their weekend. And it's extremely disorienting. It definitely isn't helping on the mental health standpoint. And so by forcing work into a certain tool, it allows Slack to be that water cooler, if you will, that informal communication tool for our remote team. And we stand up topical channels, things like parenting and hiking and cooking, where people can go in there and discuss those topics without feeling awkward that they're talking about how to persuade their seven-year-old to wear pants in the morning in the same medium that they're talking about work. Do you notice that folks forget about that sometimes they they search and they they forgot that they forgot to put something onto gitlab and now it was perched on slack and the information is gone yeah it only happens once okay <laughs> that's awesome and adjacent to that like you use other tools like i mean maybe zoom recordings maybe in cold screen one day there's a recording feature i think you're supporting the yak folks you know audio chat uh, audio messaging or loom How do you deal with these channels? Are they all ephemeral like Slack for you? And then GitLab is the only source of, of truth or do you combine them somehow? GitLab is the single source of truth, but think of it like this. Slack becomes the forum where people share links. Mm -hmm. So if you create a Loom link, you can share it in Slack. Now, yeah. ideally, you, if it's going to be something as a permanent takeaway, you would put it in the GitLab issue. But we have this principle called answer with a link. And so what you'll oftentimes see in Slack is someone ask a question, a work-related question, and it usually only takes about three or four replies before someone steps in and answers with a link. Maybe that link is a Loom recording. Maybe it's a GitLab issue or Epic with a lot uh, more detail in it. Or maybe it's someone stepping in and saying, hey, we have incepted an idea in this Slack thread. We're about five or six replies in, but clearly there's something good here that we want to continue to incubate. Before we go any further in this Slack thread, I just created a GitLab issue or Epic. Let's port the conversation over there. And essentially that's where Slack threads stop because you continue the conversation. And that just takes some normalization and, and getting used to from the uh, operational standpoint. Uh, super interesting. Uh, and a lot of this seems to be governed by specific principles and values. You often mention we have a core value on this and we have a principle on that. Can you take us through what has the process been like coming up with those values and principles? And is that something that you're still actively updating or are they fairly set at this point? GitLab's values page had over 100 merged iterations in 2020 alone. This is an organization who has had values since the beginning. And last year, there's that much evolution going into it. I even remember someone uh, in the community, they did not work at GitLab. They found our values page and they had a background in 
communications. And they submitted a merge request and they went top to bottom, adding things like Oxford commas and reworking sentences for better stylistic flow. And they submitted it and they said, this is one of the most fascinating documents I've ever seen. I appreciate you letting me contribute this proposal to make it more readable. I thought that was fascinating and it really goes to show the value of open core and, and open source and letting everyone contribute even to the values page. GitLab actually used to have a lot of values and we condensed those down to six values and then we started writing sub-values, substantiating values underneath those. And that was key to operationalizing each value. So essentially what happens is as we scale and more people work together, we will discover new ways to live the values. People will discover new ways to be efficient. They'll discover new ways to exemplify iteration. And every time we discover one of those, we add it to the values page so that new and existing team members can look at that and it becomes the spotlight on how to do those things, how to live those values. Awesome. And speaking about values, so they, I think, what frustrates us sometimes is that uh, in the pandemic, people conflate uh, issues with remote that they have in the pandemic with being with issues with remote work overall. You know, they complain about you know stress levels. Work work is so long; they they can't really turn off or switch off entirely. Also, what's your view on that? I mean, you've been remote way before the pandemic. Uh, I think we we spoke in 2019 first time about our our journey and what you've learned and so on and so forth, and about different collaboration modes. And suddenly everything what you did became kind of the blueprint for what everyone should do or had to do because we weren't able to go to the offices anymore. How do you help these people that think remote is bad because they are struggling with that in a very specific situation, which is the, this horrible pandemic? I kind of see part of my role as being the chief imagination officer for the world <laughs> because crisis-induced work from home is not the same as intentionally structured remote work. Right. I like to say that I'm the world's biggest advocate for remote work, but I haven't been able to work remotely during the pandemic. I've been able to work from home, but other than losing the commute, all of the other remote work benefits you don't get during a pandemic. So for people that really enjoy the freedom and autonomy recaptured time from losing the commute during the pandemic, you just wait. It gets better, a lot better. And I, to routinely say this to people who, if this is their first experience with remote work, they could easily be turned off by it. But it gets a lot better when you uh, intentionally structure it. And do you think there will be a backlash? You know, once folks can go to the office, that suddenly remote is no longer the thing. Do you think it's temporary, or what, I mean, maybe that's a, a good segue into the last part of the conversation. Well, how is the future going to look like? How will we work in two years from now? COVID has greatly democratized the conversation on remote work. I don't think you will ever fully put this genie back in the bottle. I think mm -hmm. there will be some teams, some people, some companies that prefer to work outside of their home. And I'm very careful to say that instead of not work remotely. Because the truth is, even the people who are in an office by default, if they take a business trip halfway around the world and they do any work at all on the airplane, they're working remotely. And if you have a headquarters in Singapore and one in Phoenix, you're working remote with each other. It is just the way we work now. It won't be long before we just stop using the word remote. It's almost like, call me on the telephone. No one says that. Just call me on the phone. We understand it's a piece of telephony. You don't have to put that 
uh, Tella on the beginning to get it. I think there, I don't, the, the backlash, there will be some of that. And here's where it's going to come from. Organizations are massively underestimating how difficult hybrid will be to get right. If you say we allow remote, you can choose whether you come into the office or you work from home. That's not enough. You have to give people the tools, the infrastructure and the operating principles to work wherever they are in a location agnostic way. If you allow half of your organization to work office first and do meetings and collaboration on a whiteboard, and then you allow all of your remoters to collaborate on things like co-screen, well, they aren't using the same tool. They're not communicating with each other. You're creating two different organizations and calling them one company. And I don't think many organizations fully appreciate the dysfunction that can come from that. That said, I am very long on remote. And I think one of the massive positive benefits to come out of this is the ability for anyone to go into a job interview now and confidently say, what is your stance on workplace flexibility? I think back 15 years ago when I was asking this in a job interview, you had to have an amazing amount of privilege and a pretty incredible portfolio of work to even think of asking for that type of flexibility. And so now the people that need it most, your working parents, elder caregivers, military spouses, introverts, these people need that flexibility the most. And now I hope they are more empowered to ask for it and organizations will have to have a solid answer on it. My hope is that that is a forcing function for organizations to not just allow remote work, but to actually support it with proper tools and then the L&D to teach people how to use those tools and to upskill their managers to be great remote managers and hybrid managers and whatever that looks like. This is an amazing opportunity. It's the, it's the opportunity of our lifetime to do work differently, but it will require investment from leaders to equip the next generation to do it well. Yeah, thank you. I, mean, I think you bring up a great point about the dangers of allowing remote work versus being set up for it. And also perhaps some of the challenges organizations will face that prematurely assume that they can go into a hybrid work mode. What are some of the tips or tricks you, or perhaps even warnings We'd like to send to those organizations thinking that, okay, we had the best part of the in-office experience. Now we've got some good side effects out of being remote. Now we're going to try to combine that into this ultimate solution. It's funny you ask that. Uh, shortly after the last in-person event that I did, where I actually got to see you, Max, briefly, it feels like a hundred years ago, uh, I was sitting at a coffee shop waiting to meet someone else in person in San Francisco. And all of the pandemic stuff started to unfold, like the earliest underpinnings of it. And I'll never forget that moment because while there at the coffee shop, I wrote a guide, which is now in the all remote section of the GitLab handbook called what not to do. It was the first thing that came to mind because as I thought about what it was going to take for the world to transition to remote, it's just too daunting to lay out all the things you need to do to do it well. It's actually easier to just not do the things that will make you do it poorly. So I actually built a guide on what not to do. And at the crux, the crux of that guide is don't replicate the office experience remotely. 
That is a passable, functional way to get business done, but you're not taking advantage of this entirely new landscape. It would be like moving from an office built a hundred years ago into a new technologically advanced office and not taking advantage of any of the technology, just continuing to use it as if it mm -hmm. had old, old plumbing and old wiring. Like why, why would you do that? You just moved into a new office with all of these new capabilities. Don't just uh, lift, lift and shift. So we have that guide. It's deeper than what I can verbalize uh, here. But the one thing that I'll mention is for leaders who are thinking about this, keep your executives out of the office if you're going to return to a hybrid organization. It is the number one thing you can do to ensure great remote fluency and solid remote infrastructure and minimal dysfunction. Because if the executives go back to the office, like it or not, the center of gravity, the center of power will follow. And it's likely that the executives will continue to work office first because it's convenient for them. It's likely that people will choose to be in the office and rub shoulders with executives over their family and community because they're going to prioritize career progression. They see it as a piece of self-preservation. By just keeping the executives out of the office, you diffuse all of that. And if people do choose to go back into the office, they do it for innocuous reasons. Things like the coffee is better at the office versus my house. That's the reason why you want people going to the office, not to get a leg up politically. I mean, it's super interesting. I, I think this is uh, almost saying that, you know, perhaps as we saw before the pandemic where some executives would be traveling all the time, they will always be out and about. Perhaps that was actually a good thing because as you said, you weren't giving a, we weren't giving uh, an extra privilege as an employee by being in the office together with that executive versus being at home. Innovation comes from friction. And so if you have the friction of all of our executives are in different time zones now, you will get innovation out of it. Sure, it'll be a little uncomfortable. Maybe it feels a little inefficient at first, but you're building muscle to be a much more risk-averse and more resilient company by doing it. And by the way, would you extrapolate that to time zone, meaning that uh, it's not all, only about the where you are in the world, but also what time you're working? We try to make our organization as time zone as agnostic as possible. Again, this is one of those forcing functions. And if you congregate everyone in the same time zones, you do get some efficiencies out of that. But you are very unlikely to build muscle to do things when people aren't in the same time zone, unless you are forced to do it. So for smaller companies that are scaling up, I actually recommend them to make their next few hires as far away from your epicenter as possible to force you to think about how you do work differently. Sure, it will introduce some inconveniences, but longer term, the, the more that you hang on to a time zone overlap, you're cornering yourself this, it's like you can only hire people within that time zone and your workflows start to fall apart if people start traveling or they aren't there for any reason. And so it just comes down to resiliency. The time zone thing forces some additional innovation and resiliency. One topic you've touched on earlier, which is um, friction creates innovation, but also serendipity, right? So folks running into each other, how do you recreate that? I think that's one of the, you know, 
original challenges of, of being remote because everything, everything is planned, everything is structured, everything is formal, everything is pre-planned. How do you still enable serendipity and create stuff that isn't planned and isn't foreseeable? I alluded to this earlier, but those serendipitous moments in an office were never really serendipitous. You had an architect design hallways, design doors, specifically to get people to run into each other and say things to each other. It was very carefully planned out. Trust me, no office was built without some, some careful planning. So you have to do the same thing remotely. You have to plan the atmosphere for people to have serendipitous conversations. A great example is if you don't use Slack or Teams for work, you're freer to just throw out draft ideas. You're, that's how, that's what serendipity is, right? It's always that one sentence that you mentioned to someone that then you start spinning on and jamming on. If you create the, the atmosphere for people to say that, then it becomes uh, a lot easier for it to happen. The other thing I'll mention here is in person matters a lot. GitLab is one of the most intentional organizations I know about in-person engagements. We get the entire company together for a week every single year. We get a lot of our sub-teams together more frequently than that. Don't try to create an organization where people never see each other. Because if you spend some amount of time together building culture, building rapport, it's just easier to reach out to that person or say something in a public Slack channel that's just an idea in draft which then becomes the next great serendipitous conversation. Yeah, I think on that topic, uh, that you have to be intentional about meeting each other, does that also mean that when you do get together, you don't do a lot of work? These are more social experiences. Yes. In-person time is best spent building rapport and building culture, not doing work. And I know this is going to be really tough for transitioning orgs to wrap their head around. A lot of times, if you're looking at sending 15 people to a sales conference, you want to make sure they're working every second of the day to get the maximum value out of it. But that's not how you get the maximum value out of it. You get people together and you might put some amount of work into it. But by and large, just let people be people. Let humans be humans. Let them build bonds and build relationships. That way, when they aren't together, they already have that awesome foundation for work to happen on top of. I'd say, given the pandemic, you must have a bit of a backlog when it comes to these in-person meetings. Uh, what does the rest of 2021 look like for you? And what are you most looking forward to in terms of? You know, I got my my first invitation to an in-person panel a few weeks ago, uh, scheduled for July in Orlando. <laughs> and I was wholly unprepared for the surge of joy to my brain upon receiving that invitation. I didn't even care what the topic was. Like, I will, I will talk about anything. We're going to talk about dog food. We're going to talk about, I, I, it doesn't matter. I'll talk about anything. So I'm excited for, for that to get going again. I think a lot of us have felt um, our social reservoir getting really low. We could all use uh, rejuvenation on that front. And I'm, I'm looking forward to the time when that can happen for all of us globally. Do you have any big events for GitLab coming up or it's all still pending depending on? We're still working that through like any organization, but it's encouraging to see companies, panels, events start taking steps towards 
getting people together again. I do have a few personal trips on the horizon and it's been fun to start booking flights again. My Delta app got really dusty for a while and it made me really sad. So I'm excited to, uh, I kept it on my first pane of my iPhone screen through the whole pandemic. Like I didn't open it at all, but yeah, it's like, I can't not have it here. You know, in solidarity, I will keep it here. It will be used again. So that's been encouraging. No, I think it was super insightful. Very, very interesting. Uh, I think lots of folks are struggling with exactly the things that we discussed. And I think it's going to be helpful in addition to the write-ups that you have to, to read about, to, to hear about it from in your own words. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And for those that are listening and want to learn more, go to allremote.info. That will get you to the remote playbook. Give that a download. And also check out the remote work report. We just published that. Um, it is a fascinating look at what makes remote work tick, what people wish they had, and what the numbers say about this transition that we're watching unfold in real time. Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show today, Darren. Uh, we've learned a ton, and I'm sure many other organizations are looking at following your lead when it comes to creating a remote first work uh, culture. Are there any final words you would like to leave the audience with? Yeah, I would say check out what we've built at GetLab, allremote.info. That'll get you into our remote playbook and all of our, our guidance there. And the other thing I would encourage you to do is question everything about how you're living and the intersection between life and work. If suddenly you don't have a commute and you can work more non-linear workdays, what could life look like for you? My wife and I adopted a newborn at birth two years ago. That was an amazing way to grow our family and it was largely supported by the flexibility of remote work. So what have you wanted to do? You may have been putting off that if you have the opportunity to work remotely, it's now much more possible. So challenge yourself, start writing some of that down, jam out with others on that and uh, let's make the world a better place together. Awesome. Thank you so much.